understanding about groups, right? Our group, your group, I have to represent well, I have to not shame the family, shame the company, uh, shame our household. There was a lot of that understanding of the groups. And some of those things is good because it leads people to give a lot for the team, to give a lot for the family. But in the West, I don't know if it's just culture or if it's marketing, it has become very much about the individual and it doesn't matter what happens to anybody else. There's a great selfishness that's been there. So have it your way. If, if people are toxic and a problem to you, cut them out of your life, right? This is, this is the motto of the West. And so it turns into things like, well, if it doesn't help me, I don't really care if it helps other people, I'm not going to do it. That is not what we see in the early church. What we see in the early church is a, a local church that is all in. Uh, and what makes them all in? What does it look like to be in an all-in type church or for someone to be all in in a local church? Do they all have to dress the same? And do they all have to attend every meeting? And is it about service or about all wearing the, the merchandise that says Columbia Road Baptist Church on it? Right? Is that what it's about? Or is there something deeper? Is there something deeper to the unity that we're asked about? And why should we go all in? If the church is meeting my needs right now, people often think, why would I consider doing anything more? And if the church isn't my, meeting my needs, then why on earth would I be there? We have slipped into this modern concept of the church as a service provider. That's where I go, I pay a certain amount of money, and I get something in return. But is that biblical? Well, we're shown what it looks like to go all in with the children of God in a local church, and the differences between that and a lot of what happens in Western modern-day churches, they are startling differences. So in Acts chapter 4, in verse number 32, the Word of God says this, And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which was his own, that he possessed, was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is, being interpreted, the son of consolation, a Levite and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let's pray together. Father, as we go to your word now, would you open it? Would you give us understanding? Would you illuminate it by your spirit and guide us into all truth? And show us where we are and where we need to be and give us the grace to travel there. In Jesus' name, amen. We have here a historical record of what happened after the Lord Jesus Christ ascended back into heaven. By this point, Jesus has gone to the cross. He has died. He was buried. He rose from the grave. He was with his disciples for 40 days. He ascended back up into heaven. And after the Spirit of God came upon the early church in the day of Pentecost, they began to preach. And thousands of people got saved and thousands of people got baptized and the church the local church in jerusalem which was the only church at this time grew larger and larger they faced persecution they faced trouble but they didn't let it stop them and they prayed together in great unity and god gave them boldness and many people were saved and we notice 
this behavior beginning in verse 32 and, and the multitude of them, there was a multitude by this time, a crowd of people, people of different backgrounds, people of different demographics, people with different stories, people with different preferences, but they were still all together. And the one thing that connected them is that they all believed. They all believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. They were of one heart and of one soul. That is very deep. When you're talking about the heart, when you're talking about the soul, you're talking about the very seat, the innermost workings of the innermost life. This was not some surface idea of, yeah, we're all on the same team and let's kind of join hand in hand whenever it suits us. They were on the deepest level connected and connected through their faith in Jesus Christ. And you say, well, how do you know that they experienced such unity? How do you know that they experienced such unity? Well, you can tell by the things that they did with their possessions. You ever had somebody say the phrase, put your money where your mouth is? In other words, you talk about it, but as soon as it costs you something, we'll find out if you are real. You talk about it, but we'll find out if there's any substance to what it is that you say. They are here unified on Christ and his word. And really, that is the only place that we could possibly unify on in a body of believers that's so different in background. I want you just to look around this room. Look around this room for a moment. This is just a small subsection of our church. You've got many people who are unable to attend in the evenings or midweek. You've got them in master clubs and junior or in the youth group. But I want you to look around and nobody here has the same story that you have. Nobody here has the same story that you have. Nobody here has the same preferences that you have. Nobody here has the same strengths or the same weaknesses that you have. Nobody here has the exact um, same finances or you name it. And so we look around this room and we say, well, how in the world are we supposed to be unified? Right? How are we supposed to be unified? Well, we need to find common ground. And the best place where we can stand is to be on the Lord's side. You know, when there's division inside of a church, it usually involves around personalities, right? Remember, they corrected in the New Testament a church that had division where some people saying, well, I am of Paul and I am of Apollos and I am of Peter and I am of Christ, right? They were centered around people. Well, people will eventually disappoint you and people will eventually be wrong. But there's only one place where we'll never find disappointment and only one place where we'll always find the truth and that is the Word of God. When we center on God and what we know about God, it comes from the Word of God, and so that's what we unify around. What does the Bible say about this? How can we do this in a way that would please the Lord? And the answer to that is to do what it is that the Bible says that we ought to do, not about what Pastor Bill wants to do or what Pastor Steve wants to do or, or, or any individual person. It's about what the Lord would have us to do. And so they unified at that level, and they did it with their money. It says, very interestingly, how they put it here, neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own. I oftentimes hear, hey, that was mine, around my house. Right? Somebody took something from someone else. I was sitting there. Right? That was my glass. I had set that out. That was my snack. That ice cream's mine right? You hear things like that around children. They're very much concerned. Am I ringing a little bit? Could you pull me down some, Dave? I love to hear the sound of my own voice, but not quite that much. Thank you. At least you all didn't say amen at that. I appreciate you and your silence. 
But that idea that the things which we have, no, that's mine. No, what they did was they laid aside their own personal rights so that they might minister to the people around them. We have a society where people are obsessed with their rights. I know my rights. I know what's coming to me. You can't treat me like that. Instead of saying, no, that's mine. I worked hard for that. You go get your own. You work for that. It says here that they had all things common, meaning that they were shared, that they were shared. They were willing to let go of perhaps what they could have under the law, they said, as their rights. But is that the mind of Christ, that I know my rights mindset? Look with me in Philippians chapter 2, would you? In Philippians chapter 2. What does Jesus think about it? What is the mind of Christ on this? Well, in Philippians chapter 2, in verse number 5, we're told, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. If we want to know how we ought to handle things when our hackles get raised, when we get upset because we feel that somebody has trespassed upon our very most sacred rights and it would be us giving up something of ours to help someone else, let us remember what the Lord Jesus gave up. That though he deserved to be glorified and worshiped in heaven and to have the chorus of angels around him praising him, though he deserved to be separated from all of the mess and the sin and the brokenness of this world, from all of the sorrow and the heartache of it, from the rejection that came to him, from the denial of people, he still chose to come here. He made himself of no reputation. And he took upon him the likeness of flesh. I don't think we can appreciate what that must have been like. Because this is all we've ever known. But I have a feeling that once the day comes when you and I are dwelling in the presence of God in our glorified bodies, we'll remember what it was like to be in that old thing. How many of you remember your first car? Some of you are still driving your first car. That's okay. But how many of you, you remember, what was it? What was it? Who wants to tell me what their first car was? Freddie, what was your first car? A Chevy Chevette. Seth, too. That's good. Yeah, Linda. A Corvair. Very good. I remember my first car was a hand-me-down from my brother. He went off to college, wasn't allowed to take his car with him. It was a 1980 Oldsmobile Regency that had the car engine taken out of it and a diesel truck engine Frankenstein into the front end of it. It was the heaviest hood that you could open. You had to squat when you were putting this thing up. And yet, as heavy as the car was, it still visibly shook from the truck engine that was inside of it. You would feel something brushing the top of your head when you drove because the upholstery was coming down. And, and we had an 8-track player in there. No tape. We had an 8-track player. This was still in the days of CDs, for those of you not familiar with the 1900s. This, we, CDs were out by that time. But all we had was an 8-track player. And I only had two, I only had two 8-tracks that my brother left me in the glove box. One was Hotel California by the Eagles, and the other one was whichever eight-track um, Michael Jackson's Mama Say Mama Sama Mambusa was on. <laughs> I forget which, which one that was on. That's all I had. I don't even think about that car anymore, but it's very different than getting into the car that the Lord has blessed me with now. 
Praise God, it's a lot nicer now, and I don't even think back to those days where it, I think it's going to be such a stark contrast when we think back what it was like to be in this flesh, and Jesus did that. He didn't begin at Bethlehem. He has always existed. He's the second person of the Trinity, and he made himself of no report, humbled himself, and the only man that ever lived on this earth that did not deserve to die was obedient unto death in order to die for you and me. And not only was he obedient unto death in some general sense, but the cruelest of deaths, the most shameful and humiliating of deaths. If the Lord Jesus, who deserved as much as the Lord Jesus deserved, was willing to set that aside to do things that please the Father, as he said, I always do those things that please the Father, then you and I have a great model for how we can set aside those things and be willing to share and to give when we feel we would rather put up walls and keep people away from us. It's very different to say, hey, we're all on the same team, and to say, hey, you can borrow my truck. Say, what's the difference? One of them, I'm actually giving of my possession something of value, as opposed to just words. And that's what we saw happening in the church. And because we saw such unity, we also saw something else in verse 33. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. What happened was that the apostles got up and they preached the word of God. They were witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ's resurrection. They told people about how he died. And remember, that wasn't so far ago that the average person in Jerusalem would have forgotten about it. They would have remembered what it was like on those days when Jesus rode in on the donkey, the triumphal entry, people shouting Hosanna and making cries like they would towards someone who they believed was the Messiah. They would remember about how he cleansed the temple and drove people out yet again and preached a powerful word and did miracles among them. They would remember how the crowd was turned by their leaders in order to call for the blood of Christ and him to be crucified. They would have remembered all of those things and then to see him publicly hung on the cross. A lot of these people would have been eyewitnesses. A lot of them would have been eyewitnesses that they were witnessing to in that city. And then to say, not only did he die as you saw, because what, what miracle is that? Many people were crucified. Many people's lives were taken. The thing that was different was that Jesus, when he laid his life down, he also took it back up again on the third day. Death had no power to keep him in the grave, and so he came forth. When the angel rolled the stone away, it wasn't for Jesus to get out. He was already gone. He needed no help. It was so that the women might get in, and Peter and John might get in to see what had been done. And that's what they testified to was the resurrection. Remember, it's, it's important that we give the entire gospel when we speak to people. Oftentimes, strange as it is, we tend to leave the resurrection out of it. We say, Christ died for your sins. And if you believe that he died for your sins, you can pray and ask him to forget. Don't forget the best part. I don't know if any of you ever saw uh, The Passion of Christ. I saw it when I was overseas. And I was still in college at the time. And I remember watching it. And do you know where it ends? <laughs> right, right at the good part. They show the most grueling the most grueling footage of what it could have been like for Jesus to suffer the things that he suffered. And right at the end, you get a bright white screen alluding to the idea that they were seeing the risen Christ. And I'm like, really? And then that was the end of the movie. I'm like, you missed it. That was it. 
Lots of religious leaders have died. Only one ever came back from the grave under the power of the Lord. And that was Jesus Christ himself. And so let us not forget to bear witness of the resurrection. They saw it. It made a difference in their lives because they witnessed this. Now they could witness it to others. They could witness of it to others. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. That is really where all the power is. Do you know that I cannot convince anybody to trust Christ? I can't convince anybody to be saved. I can't save anybody, and neither can you. You can no more save somebody, I could no more save somebody, than you and I could create a star. It's an act of God. It's a miraculous thing to see somebody born again. But you know what we can do? We can give the gospel. And the gospel is powerful. If you've ever been hesitant to talk with somebody about Jesus because you don't know how to answer all of their questions so that they're ready and say, well, I finally have no questions. I'm ready to trust Christ. Did that actually happen to anybody here? Did anybody ever answer all of your questions? Who was it that argued you into faith in Jesus Christ? And you were so beaten intellectually by their presentation that you had no choice but to surrender and say, okay, I'll become a Christian. Did that happen to anybody? That did not happen to me. You know what happened to me? I had lots of reasons why I thought that I ought not be saved. I didn't think the Bible was true, and I, didn't, I thought it was filled with errors, and I thought that um, it was just for people that needed a crutch, and I didn't need it. And I had all of these reasons why. I, and do you know who answered all of my questions and shot down all of my arguments? Nobody. You know what did happen? People shared the gospel with me from this pulpit back in that youth room. People prayed for me. And people lived out the Christian life before me. And the Spirit of God showed me my need of a Savior, and I chose to respond and accept Christ as Savior. Nobody ever logically argued me into faith in Christ. Now, does that mean that there's no place for logical arguments? Does that mean there's no place for apologetics? That's not what I'm saying. But it's going to take the power of the Lord, and that power is the gospel, is the message. That's all that we have to give. I remember one time I was invited over, and goodness, I can't even remember the man's name, but Shelly, you might remember this. Ashish had a friend who was going through a terrible time, another Indian man. And, and I told him what I had. I'm like, all I have for you is Jesus. You want trouble with this area in your life? I can tell you what the answer is. And he's like, no, 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 I, I just, I need something, I need to get involved. I need to serve. I need to, I need to feel like I'm making some progress. And I'm like, no. No, that's not going to help you, and I only have one thing. He's like, well, I've got my own gods, I've got my own religion. I'm like, well, you did call a Baptist preacher over here, and the only thing I have for you is Jesus. And if you don't want Jesus, I have no power to help you, because all of that is in Christ and in Christ alone. And so they preached forth, and they enjoyed great power, it says. They enjoyed great power. What does that look like? They preach the word. People are feeling convicted of their sin. They're repenting, coming to faith in Jesus Christ. People that are far from God get near to God. That's what it looks like when great power is poured out. But I believe that there is a direct connection to unity in a local church and the power being poured out. I think you see it in the book of Acts. There's a few different places where it comes up where you see the idea of unity followed by God's power. Look back in Acts 2, would you? On the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. 
And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. Let's look at Acts chapter 4. This is after the Sanhedrin uh, told Peter and John that they were no longer allowed to preach in the name of Jesus, and they threatened them greatly and sent them on their way. And they went back and they had a prayer meeting about being threatened. And they rejoiced that they were set free and were able to suffer for the name of Christ. It says in verse 23 of chapter 4, And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made the heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. Let's skip down to the end of that prayer in verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. The day of Pentecost, they're gathered together in one place in one accord. They pray, the Spirit of God falls. They're persecuted. They gather together wherever they were located in their headquarters at that time. And they prayed this prayer with one accord, with one voice. And what happens? The power of God falls. The place is shaken. And many people get saved because they preach the word with boldness. We see it again in our passage. It talks about how they were of one heart and of one soul. And they lived that out through their generosity and selflessness with one another. And because of that, there was great power that was poured out. There was a direct connection with their unity, with how close they were to Christ and this power that had been given. Have you ever wondered if your spiritual condition or how your spiritual condition was affecting those around you? Have you ever wondered how your spiritual condition was affecting those around you? Do you think that it's possible that if you are thoroughly right with God, that God, through your closeness with him might not just bless you, but bless those around you. I think you see that in scripture. I don't, I'm not too impressed with Lot. I'm really not impressed with Lot from the Old Testament. You know, the relative of Abraham. Abraham was sort of a good guy, don't you think? He was great. Friend of God. And because God blessed Abraham, Lot sort of got in on it. I feel like it was a trickle-down thing, that Lot wasn't so impressive as we see his decisions later on in that book. Have you ever wondered, though, if your distance from God could affect others? Your distance from God could affect others? If things aren't right with you, that they could affect perhaps other people in your household, or maybe even more broadly in our church? Is it possible that our bitterness and divisiveness and our unwillingness to forgive and maybe it's not even a direct church person maybe it's somebody in our home or somewhere else but because of that spirit we don't have unity with other people around us and we may be holding back the blessing of god this is a very small note but do you do you remember what happened when jonah was told to go to nineveh and preach where did he go he tried he tried to go as far away as he could the other direction right how did he get there by boat. Do you ever think about all the other people on that boat whose lives were put in danger? Do you ever think about all of the commercial goods that had to be thrown over the side and all of the money and the livelihood? might have ruined some of those people. You never know. In fact, I, I think back to Joshua chapter 7, if you turn there, there was a man named Achan. 
in Joshua 7. The background of this is that God uh, took Joshua and raised him up to be the leader of the children of Israel after Moses' passing. And they're going from the wilderness wanderings now into the promised land, into the land of Canaan that God had promised, and they're going to have victory over all of these warring tribes. And they're having supernatural victory. Remember, this is just after the Battle of Jericho, where instead of by warfare, simply by obedience, the walls of Jericho, which were enormous, fell down. They fell down. They didn't pull them down with siege weapons. They didn't starve them out. They didn't use disease in their siege, throwing carcasses into the city, polluting their water. No, they marched around, and then they shouted, and then the wall fell down. Pretty impressive power of God, right? Well, after taking such a big city, they ended up having trouble with a small situation. Joshua chapter 7, it says in verse number 1, But the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed thing, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. And Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Bethaven, on the east side of Bethel, and spake unto them, saying, Go up and view the country. And the men went up and viewed Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said unto him, Let not all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and smite Ai, and make not all the people to labor thither, for they are but few. So there went up thither of the people about three thousand men. And they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai smote of them about thirty and six men, for they chased them from before the gate, even unto Shabarim, and smote them, in the going, smote them in the going down, wherefore the hearts of the people melted and became as water. What happened? Achan took what he wasn't supposed to take from the spoils of the last city that they had conquered, things that were supposed to be dedicated not to his own benefit, but to the overall benefit, we can see down in verses 20 and 21 when he's confronted, when the Lord points it out to Joshua and Achan is confronted by Joshua publicly. It says, And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and thus and thus have I done. When I saw the spoils, among the spoils, a goodly Babylonish garment and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight, and I, then I coveted them, and I took them, and behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent, and the silver under it. He saw things that weren't supposed to be his, and the secret sin that he thought that he could hide underneath the tent, where no eyes would find it, ended up taking the lives of 36 of his compatriots. Not only is the blood of those 36 men on Achan's hands because he had secret disobedience hidden underneath, his tent, it also melted the hearts of the children of Israel, meaning that it sapped their strength. They were on a great high, realizing that God is so mighty that he could pull down the walls of Jericho. And then they go to fight some small group in the city of Ai, which is nothing compared to what they just did, nothing compared to what they fought on the other side of Jordan. And now they come into this and they get whooped and they run until sunset, being chased. They lost it. Do you see how his sin and his unwillingness to confess that affected everyone else around? The unity, the closeness to God that we have can bless our entire church.
And the sin that we refuse to address, that we think is hidden, hurts more than just us, or more even than just our spouse, or more even than just our family, but could hurt the whole work of God in a local church. Something to consider. Who is not experiencing great power because I am in secret rebellion? Verse 34. Back in Acts chapter 4, verse 34. Neither was there any among them that lacked. Well, that sounds great. There were no poor people in the church. There were no needy people in the church. I'm glad they only recruited from rich people. Isn't that convenient? They only recruited from rich... No, that's not... How did they end up with no poor people? Especially when it wasn't many mighty or many rich people that believed, but a lot of the underclass are the people who came to Christ. Those that had risen up the ranks had close attachment with the, the Jewish government, and they were not fond of Jesus. And there would be social repercussions among that upper class, though there were some rich that believed. It says, Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold. Do you know how it happened? The church took care of its own and didn't let any of them face poverty, didn't let any of them face need. You say, were they just so wealthy that they did that? No, they did it sacrificially. They were willing to sell of the things that they had that were by their rights, their own possession. And they said, no, the children of God, the church of God, the people of God, they are more important, more important than me getting my what's for and what's coming to me. They were willing to put others ahead of themselves. How did they give? It says, and laid them, verse 35, and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. We see it here, we see it repeated in the Old Testament that they brought their gifts and their offerings, they brought their, their tithe in the Old Testament to the Lord, to the storehouse, so that it might be used for the work of God. And the people that had need, people when they sold and they saw that there were needs in the congregation, the people sold the lands, they sold the houses, and they gave it, and then distribution was made through the church. They laid it to the apostles' feet. They were the leaders of the church. By the way, remember, they didn't have a 501c3 document. They had no charter organization. They had very little structure at this time. We haven't even hit Acts chapter 6 yet, so they don't even have deacons. This is the church in its most simplest form. They didn't have a hierarchy chart or any of the things we might think of today in an organization. They were a group of people who loved Jesus and loved one another, and they gave generously because they all believed in it. Did you know that they did this even before the um, missionary journeys that came out? Was making sure that the needs among one another, that it was, it was cared for. Did you know it said that none of them lacked? What about the guy who's not really, you know, the most faithful, but he's still a part of it? When they're like, no, we're not giving it to him because he doesn't come to church often enough. Or she doesn't really serve in the church, so we're not going to help her out. Or they're not particularly good with their money. Or they might be a little slow on the uptake and make bad decisions. No, it said that none of them lacked. None of them were without. And they gave it through the church, and the church made distribution to the people. This is just another way in which we can see that in the New Testament, the local church is God's chosen agent for world evangelism and his work to take care of his servants. 
In the Old Testament, it was the nation of Israel after God chose Abraham and his family and established them. In the New Testament, it is the New Testament church. I give through the New Testament church. I give through our local church because I believe that's a New Testament pattern. There's lots of people that perhaps call you up on the phone and they say, hey, do you want to give to this? Do you want to give to that? I'm not saying it's evil to do those things, but I want to try and do it the Lord's way. It's true that there may be other organizations that are very good that our church does not give to, but I would say that we ought to be giving through the local church, especially before we start looking to other places. Uh, as the people had need, notice in verse 35, and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. It wasn't to make everybody equal. This wasn't some sort of communism. You say, how do you know it wasn't communism? Because there's no guns. Meaning that everyone did it willingly. When somebody comes in and they tell you to share and take your money away at gunpoint, that, that is no longer Christian generosity. That's called theft. God has a commandment about that. It's wrong. So that's not what we're talking about. It wasn't forced. It was even better than that. It was people looking out for other brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're introduced to this man in verse 36. And Joseph, who was, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation. Nobody was as encouraging or as much of an exhorter as Barnabas. Barnabas was the guy you wanted to be around. You always felt better when you were in Barnabas's presence. You could tell that he was a man of God. You could tell that the spirit of God was upon him. And he had a heart for people. He really had a heart for people. You'll find later on that Barnabas comes back up. He's not only going to give of his possessions, as we see here in this verse and the next one after it, he's going to give of himself and head out with the Apostle Paul on missionary journeys. He's going to be the one who helps that first multicultural church in Antioch really get off the ground because the Jewish people were a little bit concerned that Gentiles were getting saved. And so they sent Barnabas to investigate. And Barnabas said, this is fantastic. I better get Paul. I know he has a heart for the Gentiles. Let me go grab him. And they brought them there. And Barnabas and Paul and others served in the church in Antioch before they were called to mission work. But here's where we learn about him. He was the son, uh, excuse me, he was a Levite and of the country of Cyprus. Verse 37, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. He was singled out here. Now, I don't know if he was singled out here because he had a big piece of land and he sold it and it was a bunch of money. I don't know if he was singled out here because the Spirit of God wanted to make sure that we had some background and some idea on who Barnabas was before we read about him in the future. But God decided to single him out for his act of generosity. God decided to single him out for his act of generosity. And forever, it's in the Word of God. Forever, it's in the Word of God. And what were they going to do with the money? Well, they were taking care of one another as people had need. So what should we take away from this? What should we take away from this? First of all, we need to unify around God's word in our church. We need to unify around God's word in our church. I thank God that I think we do this pretty well. I'm very excited about that. Uh, but you may someday find yourself in a different church and you may sense that there's not a lot of unity and you say, what can I do in order to help there be unity in the church? It is to center around the things of the Word of God. There are churches that experience disunity and fighting and squabblings. Praise God, we haven't had a lot of that. I know some people, they dread meeting with their deacons. 
Some pastors dread meeting with their deacons because it, it turns into a, an argument about everything. They can't decide on what color of paint to paint what room, and it's all just personalities and ego and, and conflict. And I praise God that we don't have that. But personality problems, preferences on non-essentials, past hurts or failures, all of these can create disunity inside of a church. Pastor Jenkins would oftentimes preach on things like this, and he would say, there's nothing wrong, this is just preventative maintenance. And so I, I take that same line, I'll steal it right from him. This is just preventative. Oh, when you're preaching, it's not stealing. You say, I'm going to make that a part of my ministry. It's a better word than plagiarism. For example, people might say, I'm with Pastor Bill, or I'm with Pastor Steve, or I'm with Pastor Jenkins. That, that's not unity. That's not unity. We all line up with God by lining up with his word. I don't want God on my side. I want to be on God's side. And the only way to know what that is is to do what his word says. Sometimes there's unity around the wrong things in a church. Maybe there are strong personalities and they pull people from one side to the other. Sometimes friendships or hobbies, all sorts of unusual things that people can unify around. But let's make sure we unify around the Lord. Second of all, we need to connect our spiritual health with the power of our church. We need to connect our spiritual help with the power of our church. In Acts, there's this pattern of unity leading to God's power. And the church is a people, right? And each individual has their own walk with God. And I don't know your heart. You know, I don't sit there in my prayer time and get a list from God saying, oh, this, this person in the congregation is far from God, or this person is doing good. I don't get like a report card on you. I don't, I don't get like a background check, just so you know. That's not how that works. But all of us has our own walk with the Lord. And it could be habitual sin. It could be lukewarmth. It could be division or pride or some sort of secret rebellion or gossip. And who knows, if we have unaddressed sin in our lives, what it could be doing to hold us back from seeing God's power poured out. I don't know of anything in particular, but I believe that the closer we all are, that we all are to being right with the Lord, the more we will enjoy of his power. We should encourage people to live holy lives, separated lives. And I love people who understand that being part of a good local church is one of the greatest things going. I have been blessed to always have been in a good church. I just, I, I was at this church when I first came to know Christ. I was at North Columbus Baptist Church when I was a student at OSU. And then I went down to Temple Baptist Church uh, at, when I went to seminary, and then I came back up here. I've never been in a church where there was all sorts of nonsense, but some of you have been in churches where there was nonsense, and you know it's very different to come to church when people actually like each other and want to be there than when there's some sort of ugly elephant in the room, and nobody wants to talk about it, and this person won't look at that person, and pastor's preaching, and someone's in the front row harumphing, saying that they don't like that, and you know, people in the parking lot having secret meetings, without the church leadership, things that they're upset about. I mean, you probably, some of you have never experienced that, and that's wonderful. Praise God you've never experienced that. Let us keep that from happening here, ever, by deciding that if we're wronged, we're going to be dead to self, we're going to try and make things right, we're going to be peacemakers. They may have legitimately wronged you. Some failure may have happened. Someone may not have been what they ought to have or they may have something in their life and, and you see it. Instead of deciding that you're going to throw people away or throw a church away, let's be the kind of people that 
are peacemakers, that ye which are spiritual restore such a one, that we have that kind of heart for one another. And when we do so, when we choose to live holy lives, when we choose to walk in the Spirit, we will only know more of God's power in our church. Lastly, we should support our church to care for its members in financial hardship. I don't think, from what this passage says, that everybody was getting rich. But what it says was nobody that lacked, nobody that was poor, nobody that was needy was allowed to face that. Nobody. And they didn't have very much money, they didn't have very much organization, but they still managed to care for one another. So the people were hungry who had food, people that were homeless had shelter, people that didn't have um, clothing had the raiment that they needed. The church distributed physical assistance to those that needed it. And it was emphasized here twice about how they shared everything they had and didn't consider it their own, and emphasized about the we're willingness to sell and to give. No member was allowed to face poverty. The people gave generously. They gave sacrificially. I, I feel like when I look at this passage that caring for people in the congregation that are having a hard time is not an afterthought, but a core part of what makes a church a church. I don't think it's an afterthought. I don't think it's a small line budget item. I think it's something where people are in love, glad to do it, joyful to do it, instead of it being like you got to pry it out of somebody's hands. And praise God, our church also in this area has a very good track record of taking care of people. And if it hasn't in some way, it's probably because we were unaware of it or we were aware of it and in that moment couldn't meet that need. So give to be a part of this. Continue to give to support the work. Second of all, if you need help, come and let us know. We really don't know everything that's going on in your lives. And I, if you know of somebody that's struggling, also come and let us know. It's a joy to help people that are in hardship. Listen, I believe that God may very well provide for somebody's need that's in financial hardship, and he might do it by having it come into their local church. And it's sitting there waiting to be distributed to that person as God has provided, but if the church doesn't know about it, the church can't do it. And it's, it's, a, it's a humbling thing to have to ask for help. It's a humbling thing. But it's an exciting thing in order to be able to give help. And I think that it blesses the Lord to see his people generous and caring for one another. So let us know if someone is struggling. Let's ask a couple of questions before we start our prayer time as we think through this passage. Why should we unify <clears throat> around God's word instead of around something else? Yes, Cheryl? Because it's the truth. But wouldn't it be enough to just have an awesome music program? It just rocks, and we all come here because we love to hear the music. Wouldn't that be enough? No, the answer is no, by the way. Why should we unify around it? Yes, Shelley? That's right. The church is the ground and pillar of the children's programs. No, the church is the ground and pillar of the truth, right? So we don't want to ever put anything else in that spot. Any other reasons you can think of why we ought to unify around that? Yes, Ben? 
It might be all that we have in common. Yeah, for some people it might be. It might be all that we have in common. What does it look like to be spiritually healthy? If our spiritual health can rub off on others, if our blessing can fall on those around us, what does it look like to be spiritually healthy? Because I want to be that. Yes, it might not look like what you think. Amen. You know what I would think about when I, when I hear that would be um, um, Kimmy Ostro. I don't know how many of you knew Kim Ostro, but she had so many health problems, so many health problems. Was an amputee multiple times, and every single time I went to see her, I left more encouraged. She had such a faith in God, despite the hardship that she was going through, and her body was racked with problems. And you wouldn't say that person's healthy in many ways, but I believe spiritually she was. Those of you who remember her and know her would say the same thing. What else does it look like to be spiritually healthy? Well, let's shift a little bit. How can I get spiritually healthy? Do I need to eat my spiritual vegetables? Cut down on spiritual sugar? Yes. Reading the Bible? Excellent. Yes. Yep. See? Praying consistently? Yes. Yes. Confessing sin, keeping a short account. Anything else? Yes. Chris? Sharing your faith. Yep. Being a good witness. That'll help you for sure. Sometimes we think that spiritually healthy people are people that have won the victory over all of their struggles. But I want to tell you that that's not a thing. Because <laughs> as soon as you win one struggle, there's another one. Whether it's because God refines you further and makes you even more like his son, or because the devil is going to make sure that some problem comes up. So it's not that nobody has any troubles that they're spiritually healthy. It's that they're in the battle against them, in the power of the Lord. So I'm not, I'm not concerned when people are struggling because that means they're fighting. I know some people, they think, I would never go forward to the altar and pray in church because then people would think that there's something wrong with me. If I never see somebody at the altar, that's the one I'm, I'm worried about, with the exception as if you had like a knee replacement or something and you can't kneel down there, right? That's not a mark of spirituality, but... Lastly, why should the church take care of its members? Jim? God tells us to. That's, that's sort of a shut and close, an open and closed thing. Yep. Because we're family. Those are good. Anybody else? Dave? Yeah, it helps people feel loved. It helps them feel like they're a part of something. How shall all people know that you are my disciples, Jesus said? By how you love the brethren. By how you love the brethren. 
And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the example we've been shown by people that had so little. Father, they didn't even have a completed Bible yet at this time. And, and yet they had so much love and so much Christ-likeness. And I'm sure that things weren't perfect but we can learn so much from it. And I pray that you'd help us to grow into it. In Jesus' name, amen. If you didn't receive a prayer sheet, would you mind slipping your